Hey, I'm Natasha Crane. And I'm Elisa Childers. Welcome to Unshaken Faith, where we equip you to live your Christian faith boldly in a chaotic culture. If there's one thing everyone agrees on today, it's that love matters and everyone should be loving. So whether you're a Christian, a secular humanist, a Muslim, a Mormon, or anything else, you almost certainly agree that love is one of the most important values for humans. What we've seen in recent years is that love has taken such pride of place in American culture that it has ousted pretty much every other value. People have boiled everything in life down to a singular focus on love. And in a very practical sense, they've made it their religion, effectively claiming that if everyone would just choose love, the world would leave behind all its current divisions. I mean, didn't we try this in the 60s? All you need is love, the Beatles song. <laughs> but to be clear, it isn't a straw man to suggest that people see love as their religion. If you Google it, you'll find all kinds of t-shirts, mugs, songs, and more that proudly and quite literally state, love is my religion. Today, we want to respond to several quotes and memes around this theme that love is all that matters, particularly because it's a claim that people often use to oppose biblical doctrine, morality, and Christianity in general. But first, let's hit some announcements and our tips of the week. Well, we just finished our second Unshaken Conference last Saturday held at Calvary Chapel, Chino Hills in Southern California. We had an amazing turnout, and we are just so grateful for all of you who came out. It was such a pleasure to spend the time with you. And it's going to be a few months now before we have our next stop, but it's coming September 23rd in Tucson, Arizona. If you're planning to be there, you need to get your tickets now. The discounted early bird tickets are still available for that like location, but they will likely be gone soon. In fact, the early bird tickets are already sold out for Nashville, which will be held on November 4th. But if you want to go to Nashville, you still can. It's just that the early bird tickets are sold out. So you can get your general admission tickets at unshakenconference.com. My tip of the week is on what to do if your church decides to do a book study on a book you know is problematic for its views or its author. Okay, so first, be sure that you know the book is actually problematic and why. So going to someone in leadership and offering vague generalities of your concerns is not going to be helpful and it's not going to change anyone's mind. So make sure you do your research on the specific book first. Second, if you're sure it is problematic, then I would reach out to the study leader, explain that you have some concerns about the selected book, and then say you're curious to learn how it was selected. If you find out it was chosen by someone specific in leadership, then you can follow up with them to voice your concerns. When this happened to me at a prior church, I learned that our pastor hadn't read the book in question and was really just leaning on the recommendation of some church members regarding the book for a study. But when I did bring the concern, the pastor wasn't very concerned concerned about the problems raised, so the study went on. Well, that brings me to the final point. If the study goes on, despite you raising concerns, go join the study. Be part of the discussion, and hopefully you'll be able to graciously demonstrate where there are issues. I actually had a friend at our church who did exactly this, and she ended up going and having some great conversations as part of that book study. And it turned out that everyone in the group ended up saying, yeah, this is problematic. This, this is not biblical. If, of course, I do want to add, though, that if a problematic book is part of a larger ongoing concern about discernment of leadership, it might be time to consider a new church home. Sometimes there's just a one-off situation where that's not the case, but you have to look at the patterns over time. 
That's really good. And uh, my tip for the week is always check the primary source. So I'm going to give a fun little example. Maybe you've heard the quote, preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. Have you heard that one, Natasha? I have. Yeah. And it's always attributed to St. Francis. The problem is that St. Francis never said that. And I just like to point out that whoever did say that used words to say it. So there's that. <laughs> but but uh, St. Francis actually never said that. But I see memes all over the place on social media with that quote, preach the gospel at all times, if necessary, use words, St. Francis. And often the implication is that you don't actually need to deliver the gospel message with, with your actual words, which doesn't make sense because the word gospel means good news. And the gospel is the proclamation of the good news, which requires words. It's a verbal message. But if that gets, you know, put into someone's social media newsfeed, don't just assume it's true. Check the primary sources. Do a little bit of research. Did St. Francis actually said this? Where did this quote originate? Because there's a lot of false attributions out there. And there's a lot of just frankly, false information out there that can be attributed to to anyone and anything given our social media climate and internet access. So just always go to the primary sources. I'm sure you've experienced this too, Elisa, but I really encountered that while writing my last book because sometimes you're writing and you think of some quote that you've heard that's very popular and you're thinking, oh, that would be perfect here. And so you start to look for it, you find the quote, and then you're trying to look for the attribution so you can put an end note with it. And then you go down this rabbit hole of finding, oh, wait, Einstein didn't say that. Right. (laughs) I I remember that was one of the quotes that I was looking up and it's like, no, actually that can't be traced back to him. And then you start, and I found multiple quotes like that where it turns out that whoever you think said it actually didn't see it. So yeah, and it's not even it's not just quotes. Even things can make their way into scholarly books that are false. They're not even real facts like the the thing that went around for the longest time about hell Gehenna being a garbage dump outside of Jerusalem. The first historical evidence of it being a garbage dump wasn't even until like somewhere in the Middle Ages. So there's just really no evidence. But that even made its way into scholarly work. So always check the primary sources. That's a great tip. Well, in last week's episode, we defined religion for our purpose there, but we need to roll that out again for today real quick. So religion is an organized system of beliefs, ceremonies, and rules used to worship a god or a group of gods. Obviously, a concept like love doesn't qualify as an organized system of beliefs. Imagine mugs that fill in any other noun. Flowers are my religion. Computers are my religion. Feet are my religion. None of that would make any sense using the literal meaning of the word religion. But that's sort of the point when people say love is their religion. They're basically just saying they don't need all those other kinds of beliefs that religious people have. All they need to know and practice is love and anything else is secondary. Well, the most important thing to immediately recognize about statements and or philosophies of this nature is that love requires a definition. And we've talked about this a little bit before on the podcast, but we're just going deeper into it today. This seems obvious that you have to have a definition. So it's kind of interesting that people appeal to the idea that love is all that matters, assuming it is just self-explanatory. In fact, if you ever take the opportunity to push back on someone regarding how they define love, you may very well get mocked or laughed at because people want you to think it is just so obvious. But every word does require a definition. And any word that has a moral element to it, like love, is going to require an objective standard. 
unless we're willing to simply say love is entirely relative to the individual. Well, a quick way to show someone that the definition of love isn't relative is by asking if they think it's appropriate for a 50-year-old man to be in a romantic relationship with a seven-year-old girl as long as he claims to love her or even if the two of them claim to love each other. Most people intuitively are not going to be okay with that. So if there are cases of so-called love that we're willing to exclude, lines to be drawn, that implies we all acknowledge there is some kind of standard necessary for defining love. The question then is what that standard is. Well, therein lies the problem with any life philosophy or religion built on a singular value of love. Without identifying an objective basis for defining love or identifying other values that correspond with love, you're really not saying anything at all when you say you just believe in love. It's just a positive-sounding way of getting out of commitment to any particular religious beliefs. And ironically, it's often a way of shaming anyone who disagrees with your personal definition of love as well. If you just make it sound like, hey, we all know what love is and then claim that someone's not being loving is sort of the ultimate cultural hand slap today, to put it lightly. So with that in mind, let's apply that understanding to some popular quotes and memes and think through how we can respond. So our first example you've probably seen in your social media newsfeed at one point or another. It's a popular cartoon by David Hayward, who's known online uh, under the name Naked Pastor. And this meme shows Jesus talking to several people carrying Bibles. And, you know, the assumption is that these are Christians. And Jesus tells them, Quote, the difference between me and you is you use scripture to determine what love means, and I use love to determine what scripture means. Now, this is something that I think is possibly effective because people haven't thought through what their definitions of love are. But let's just think for a moment about what the Bible actually is. If the Bible is God's revealed word, if the Bible is how we know who God is, then we absolutely should use scripture to determine what love means. And if we don't do that, we're going to be coming up with some sort of subjective or arbitrary definition of love to interpret scripture through, which really just makes yourself your own authority. Now, here's an example. Uh, of course, we know from scripture that God is love. It's an attribute of God. It's actually, we have a word love to describe who God is. And then, of course, Paul fleshes this out for us in 1 Corinthians 13, when the famous passage on love, love is patient, love is kind. But he also says love cannot rejoice in wrongdoing and love rejoices in the truth. Well, now we have completely opposite definition of love uh, as we have in culture. And I just want to give one quick example. Uh, Glennon Doyle wrote a wildly popular book a few years ago called Untamed. And in the book, she recalls a letter she received from a woman that she knew at her former church. Now, if you're unfamiliar with Glennon Doyle's story, she essentially left her husband and married women's soccer star, Abby Wambach. And so the woman that she had been to church with was confused because on one hand, she wanted to show love to her friend um, and affirm her decision. But on the other hand, her Christian convictions, in other words, how she uh, you know, defines love based on the Bible, these things were intention. And so when she wrote that, here was Doyle's response. She said, first of all, thank you for knowing that you have a choice to make. Thank you for landing on I love you, but... 
We know that love has no buts. If you want to change me, you do not love me. If you feel warm toward me, but you also believe I'm going to burn in hell, you do not love me. If you wish me well, but vote against my family being protected by the law, you do not love me. Thank you for understanding that to love me as yourself means to want for me and my family every good thing you want for yourself and for your family. Anything less than that is less than love. So she's essentially saying, if you go by the Bible's definition, of, for example, marriage and sexuality, you don't love me. But we can see the the absolute uh, uh, just interesting contradiction here because Jesus talked about hell more than anybody. And Jesus actually condemned people to hell. So she's in essence saying Jesus wasn't loving. So this is a heavy charge. Like, are we going to get our definition of love from scripture? Or are we going to make one up and then filter scripture through that? That quote is a great example of the difference between a very secular view of what love is and a biblical view. That's a, that is just the most perfect example. If you don't affirm me, then you don't love me. That is basically that secular view. And this, this cartoon, I've seen this one too, all over online. Notice how it implies that Jesus needs to determine what scripture means. (laughs) He says, I use love to determine what scripture means as if Jesus needs to interpret scripture to figure out what it says. If Jesus is God and the Bible is God's word, Jesus wrote the Bible. Yeah. He knew what he meant. He knew. what he meant when he said it, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. There, like, There's no need for Jesus to interpret the Bible. So that says a lot about the uh, Christology of the person who does this cartoon, right? Yeah. That he's assuming that Jesus would actually need to know what scripture means. And it's funny too, because you know we were talking about this b- before the show that all, all the time when you see these kinds of cartoons, you always see Jesus kind of looking at a group of Christians with dismay and frustration. Like, how did you guys get this wrong? You had one job, yeah. that kind of thing. You see that all the time. Like if you're just going back to your Bibles, if you're clutching your Bibles, You've got it all. Yeah. And all the Christians holding Bibles just look like the most miserable, unhappy, stuffy people you ever met in your life. Exactly. We're all just miserable. If we could just love according to some self-obvious definition, we'd be fine, right? Well, here's another one that I saw recently. It was posted by a progressive Christian pastor with the words, a great reminder. And here's what it said, quote, Buddha was not a Buddhist. Jesus was not a Christian. Muhammad was not a Muslim. They were teachers who taught love. Love was their religion, end quote. So one of the things that I teach my kids is to evaluate any statement like this by identifying the core claim. We call it cutting through the clutter. So so the implied claim here is that all these religions are just man-made ideas that come after their teachers. And if we just cut away from all that, you're going to find love at the bottom of the pile. So how do you respond to something like this? Well, first, it's completely meaningless to separate the religion from the founder. Even if a founder didn't have a name for his movement and identify under a specific label in his life, that doesn't mean anything, logically speaking, about what he taught. This is a complete non sequitur. It just doesn't follow. Christian, Muslim, and Buddhist are just names for the system of beliefs that was that were taught by their founders. So the first half of this quote means nothing. It, it's literally meaningless. Let's look at the second half. They were teachers who taught love. Love was their religion. Okay, well, first let's fact check, like Elisa was saying. Were they teachers who taught love? Well, yeah, in varied ways. They all taught love in some form, though they would define it differently. But generally speaking, that's true. But here comes the conclusion of the quote. Love was their religion. 
Well, again, this doesn't even logically follow. They can all be teachers who taught love, but also taught on many other things. If they taught a thousand things and love was one of them, we wouldn't say love was their religion. So the bottom line question that this quote should raise if we're thinking critically is, well, what exactly did they each teach? The person who wrote this thinks that they just made a case that their religions were love, but that doesn't follow in any way from what they just said. If you actually look at what each founder taught, you'll see vastly different teachings. Just because love is a common teaching across religions doesn't mean that love itself is synonymous with any one religion. You have to compare the totality of truth claims. So again, just remember, yes, love can be in common across different religions. That doesn't mean that they just boil down to love in some sense. Well, and it just betrays a breathtaking ignorance of the history of Islam as well, which I know we don't have time to get into today. But um, oftentimes the claim that love is all that matters, it's not as explicit as in the two examples we just looked at, but the same basic idea manifests itself in many other ways. So we're going to take a look at a couple of those examples as well. So here's one. A church web Website I recently saw had the following comment on it, quote, the Bible is an ancient book made up of many books. It speaks to a time and place often different from our own. So we wrestle seriously with it, but refuse to use it as a weapon to harm others and exclude them from God's love, end quote. So I would actually agree with the first half of this quote. The Bible is an ancient book. It is made up of many books. It does speak to a time and place often different from our own. And I do wrestle with it seriously. And because of that, though, I disagree with the rest of the statement, which says we refuse to use it as a weapon to harm others. Now, of course, I'm not going to use the Bible as a weapon to harm others, but what they mean with this quote, using it as a weapon and exclude people is basically to to put any sort of moral obligations onto other people. So for example, a church that might say, we we believe that marriage is a covenant commitment between one man and one woman for a lifetime. In the mind of the progressive church, they're saying, you're using the Bible as a weapon to harm others and exclude them because in their minds, if you don't have that equal outcome, you're harmed and you're excluded from God's love. But it'd be good to remember that Jesus was the most inclusive person in all of history in in his invitation. He invited everyone to deny themselves, pick up their cross daily and follow him. But he's also the most exclusive person in all of history in that those who do not choose to trust in him and to deny themselves and pick up their cross and follow him, they are excluded from his goodness and love and mercy for eternity. And so I think that a lot of times these statements are just kind of like these, these play on words that sound confusing because you want to agree with a lot of what they're saying, but there's there's an accusation in there that if you were to hold somebody to any kind of moral obligation or if the church were to do that, then you're just using the Bible as a weapon. A perfect example of this is on the passages in the Bible that talk about homosexuality, they're referred to as clobber passages. I mean, that tells you right there that people feel that if the Bible says, hey, you cannot do this behavior, that you're clobbering them or you're using it as a weapon. But we all we know that God God's prohibitions, his guardrails that he puts on us are flowing out of his love for us. And uh, that is because it's for our good, but also because he is perfectly holy and just and righteousness and his holiness means he can have no unity with sin, which is how we want him to be because we don't want him letting sin into heaven because then heaven would just be another version of hell or at least another version of what we've got on earth right now, which is far from perfect if you haven't noticed. 
And I think that in all these examples, think about, and you can apply this in any meme that you see, but imagine what the meme or the quote is presupposing about the nature of the Bible. If the Bible is actually God's word, as Christians should believe, then it's not something that is weaponized. It's not that these passages are clobbering people or that people are using them to clobber others as, as long as they're being interpreted rightly, of course. And so if something is presupposing that the Bible is not God's word, then you're going to know that that person, whoever the originator is of it or whoever is sharing it, does not agree that the Bible is actually God's word. And so that is going to be a major difference in how you're going to see things from where they're coming from. Well, thanks, you guys, for listening today. Don't forget to subscribe to the Elisa Childers podcast and the Natasha Crane podcast for more long form episodes where we go deeper into topics like these. For now, let's remember that as Christians, we have a firm foundation to stand on. That, as Psalm 62 puts it, is our rock and salvation, our fortress where we will never be shaken. Mm-hmm.